chapter 3 is where we will be today. Jonah chapter 3. If you'll remember with me, Jonah is one of the Old Testament prophets. He's uh, one of the minor prophets, is what uh, many Bible expositors and teachers and theologians call uh, Jonah. And then there's other prophets that are called major prophets. And it's not because one was more important than the other. They were all speaking forth God's word, but it has to do with content, the amount of words that they said. So Isaiah is like 66 chapters. Uh, That's a major prophet. Daniel only had like, what, 12 chapters, and it's still considered a major prophet. Jonah is not, and Jonah's more, uh, it's different than most of the prophets because it's a prophet writing about what he went through, although he writes it in a way where you'd think that somebody else wrote it from third person. But Jonah is well known, if you've ever heard somebody called a Jonah, they're they're called that not for a positive reason. Jonah wasn't, I would call him the most uh, obedient prophet. He was probably known as a a reluctant prophet. And uh, if Jesse will hit the next slide there, um, that's kind of what the the title slide says, is, you know, uh, a look at a reluctant servant. And I don't know about you guys, but I can actually relate more to a reluctant servant than I can to somebody that's always been obedient. That's my life story. I was the oldest of two boys. And I didn't get as much in trouble as much as my younger brother, but it wasn't because I was obedient, it was because I was compliant. And there's a difference. Compliance basically does as much as I can to make sure I don't get in trouble so that when dad says, hey, did you do your chores? Yes. But it's, compliance isn't always because my heart's right. It's just because I know what I can do to make sure I stay under the radar. You know, it's like most of you guys, when you drive, you drive under the speed limit in certain areas to remain under the radar. You drive through Lettington, you're, you're, you don't want to go the speed limit, but you're doing it because you know that Barney Fife is there, Right? But the idea is, is that Jonah was a reluctant servant. He wasn't willing to go. God said to him in chapter 1, when the word came to him, he said, go to Nineveh, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So this tells me that God is aware of the wickedness going on in this world, and we need to remember that. And I think we also need to remember that when we pray. When God is, God is aware of the wickedness, and sometimes it helps us to say, Lord, do you see what's going on over there? Do you see how they're treating people? Do you see what was said? Do you see how they're treating individual souls that you created? And then we remember when we pray that, oh yes, of course you see that, because you see everything before I do. But then he tells him to go, and Jonah does what every prophet does, right? He goes and he does it. No, he turns and he goes the opposite direction, and he goes actually as far as he can. He attempts to go as far away from the will of God as he can because he doesn't like what God has told him to, set, to do. And so as he is known for going the opposite direction, he spends three days and three nights in the heart of a fish as a result of his disobedience. This wasn't God's fault. This was Jonah's fault. And many times things happen to us, and we end up in what we would consider the belly of a fish, like the the least likely place to want to be. And then we turn around, listen to yourself sometime, and then you start blaming God. I've done that. God, why did you let me get here? But the reality is, many times, the circumstances we find ourselves in, not always, 
But many times, because of our disobedience, we end up in the belly of a fish. We end up in this nasty, disgusting, horrifying place of trial. And we go, Lord, why did you put me here? And actually, Jonah prays that. He knows the voice of God, and he prays, you have swallowed me up. You're a fish. You. And at the same time, he's not wrong, because God prepared that fish to swallow Jonah. But put yourself in the place of the fish. I was thinking about this this week. Put yourself in the place of the fish. We're always like, oh man, it had to be horrible for Jonah. Think about the fish. Jonah's very presence in the belly of this fish made the fish throw up. I don't like throwing up. I assume that fish don't like it either. And so here he is. He's got this indigestion caused in his belly and then he throws up this nasty man that I guarantee didn't look as good as he did when he went down. But this is the grace of God. God's giving him a second chance to do what he told him to do. So without further ado, let's go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This is a second shot with the same instructions. Saying, just like he did in chapter 1, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So he's told him the same thing, except this time he doesn't say what to say. He says, go there and I'll tell you what to say. Okay, two steps was too much for you, Jonah. How about I give you one, and then when you get there, I'll give you another. And that's not a bad thing, because sometimes I'm that. I need one instruction, I'll do it, and I go, okay, now what next? Sometimes that frustrates me, but I'm easier... I'm more able to obey when you give me one instruction. So he says there, rise and go to Nineveh, and then he describes the city of Nineveh, that great city. What is he saying about Nineveh? Is he saying that it's a great place to go? Is he saying that it's really popular and you'll see all the right sights there? No, the word great here means in size. What we find out later is that to cross Nineveh, whether it's to go around or whether it's to go through, takes three days, three days journey. Now, if I was walking for three days, I could get pretty far, three miles an hour or something like that. Say I only walked eight hours at three miles an hour average, end up 24 miles away. So 24 times three, I can't do that much math apparently, but it's a lot, almost 75 miles minus three, which is 72. That's new math. That's not common core. Um, but my, the idea is that you, you end up going through the city and it takes three days journey. So he's told to do the same thing once again and he gets a second chance. But I also want to point out something. This book is about God. It's not about Jonah. It's not about the fish. It's not about the Ninevites. Our God is a God of second chances. He gives second chances to Jonah and he gives second chances through Jonah to the Ninevites. Because while God cares very much about Jonah, and we've already seen that, even though Jonah might not think so. God saved his life. But secondly, he cares even just the same as the Ninevites. He cares about the Ninevites. He cares about people that are skinning people alive. He died to save them. He cares about people that don't care about anybody but themselves and are all wrapped up in their culture. He, he died for them. Jesus did. And he sends his prophets to them. So they get a second chance too. Verse 3, So Jonah, this time, arose and went to Nineveh. 
according to the word of the Lord. He obeyed. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. He doesn't just say it's a great city. He says it's exceedingly great. It was huge. It took up four cultures to make this city when it started. And if you check back in, in Genesis and some of the, uh, some of the, the uh, genealogies, you see these cities pop up, and they, they all divide from these different people. But Nineveh was made up of four different cultures. But what it says there is a three-day journey in extent, meaning you would take three days to walk across it. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now this is no Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham steps up and he says, Hey, he starts with the bad news. The bad news is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you're one of all. You're one of those all. That's the bad news. God's got a standard. You fall short of it. And when you try to do good, your best day is as filthy rags in God's sight because his standard is way beyond anything that we can do on our own. But, see, when you have the bad news, then you need the good news. The problem is, is that most people think that they're good. Jesus had a man walk up to him and say, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was someone we know as the rich young ruler. And Jesus responded and said something that's interesting to him. He said, why do you call me good? Now, Jesus could have said, yep, you're right, I'm good, I'm perfect. But he didn't. He wanted to question something that was built into this man's thought process. He said, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that is who? God. So if you're calling me good, maybe it is because you recognize that I am like God because I am God. But the other thought we need to think about is that Jesus was saying right there that there is no one who is good. And if you read the Old Testament all the way through the New, you can see that about men and women. There was no one that was good. The only ones that had any goodness in them were because they knew God and because they obeyed what he said. And so we need to be careful when we say someone is good and recognize that there is no one. The Bible teaches no one is good except God. And so Jonah goes into this city, and he proclaims not the good news, but the bad news. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The, the number 40 in the Old Testament and in the New, in the Bible, is a, a number that represents um, a warning. What was the word? Judgment. Forty days. Uh, Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, he was tempted for 40 days. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. He was there for 40 days. Um, actually, it's interesting if you look at the life of Abraham, or excuse me, Moses. Moses was in Egypt for 40 years. Then he killed someone. He left, was in the wilderness. He met his wife. He was there for 40 years. And when he was 80 years old is when he saw the burning bush, and God called him to go back to Egypt to deliver his people for his last 40 years, he lived to be 120. So 40 years, these times of testing, these set periods. So here we have Jonah saying, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Why would God tell him 40 days? 
Why wouldn't he just say, hey, your time's up. Bam, it's over. Well, second chance. That's exactly right. His second chance is offered. So many people would look at this message to the Ninevites, and all they would hear is, God's going to destroy them. The God of the Old Testament is so unmerciful. He's so mean and full of wrath. And in the New Testament, you have this God of love. He's totally different. But I would argue that because when Jonah said this at the word of the Lord, he said, in 40 days it will be destroyed. It's a a warning shot. Hey, God's going to judge you. Your city will be destroyed. We got 40 days to do something about it. So I, I think it's interesting that many times people focus on what God is going to destroy and show his wrath, but they never focus on the fact that, hey, he gave him 40 days, 40 whole days to do something about it, to practice faith, to believe what God said and do something. Now, what can they do if God's warned them that he's going to judge them? It's coming anyway. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what the world says. That's what Solomon wrote. That's the way the world thinks. If I'm going to be judged anyway, why don't I just live it up? Why don't, why don't I go? My pastor always says, if I'm going to go downhill, I'm not going to like, you know, sell myself out to watch you know, movies I shouldn't watch. I'm going to go Motley Crue. Let's let it rip. I mean, if this is the only heaven you get, you better live it up. But it's, it's not. And so here he goes. He says, um, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So God's mercy in warning them, but his grace in giving them time to do something about it. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe, his his robe of royalty, he took it off, he laid it aside, he humbles himself, and then he covers himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused a proclamation. So what does it mean where it says this, that they they proclaimed a fast and they put on sackcloth? They, they, number one, said, we're not going to eat. We're going to um, inflict ourselves. But then they're going to put on sackcloth. Now, the, fr- the closest thing I can think of is those old potato sacks that you used to do sack races in. You'd get in them and you'd hop, you know, and I'd fall over. Or, you know, but these, have you ever touched sackcloth? It is itchy. It is the worst thing. It, it, the only thing worse that I can think of is putting on a, a fiberglass outfit. I mean, you just, it, it's just eats at you it wears on you it's you're constantly reminded that you're wearing something that's not comfortable so what they're doing is they're they're, they proclaim to fast they decided we will not eat and then they put on this clothing that makes them entirely uncomfortable from the greatest of them to the least of them and then when the king gets word that this judgment has been pronounced on them he rises up from his throne He lays aside his robe, which I guarantee was the most comfortable thing to wear. And it made him look good. Took it off. He's the king. He doesn't have to do anything anyone tells him. And he lays aside his robe. He covers himself with sackcloth. And then he sits in ashes. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament, especially in this culture. When there's mourning going on, they throw ashes on themselves. They're, They're weeping. They're mourning. 
we, we don't mourn very much as a culture. But what they're doing is they're mourning this uh, destruction of their city. They've had a judgment pronounced upon them, and they're doing something to tell heaven, hey, we've heard what you said, and we believe it, and we don't know what to do, but we're going to mourn this in hopes that you will relent. And so he caused it to be proclaimed, and he published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying this. So this is what the king said. Uh, today it would be on Twitter, right? We get, we get the edict of our, our leader through Twitter, but this guy had more than 40 characters, so he goes for it. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. So not only are the people fasting, but they're making their animals not eat. Now that's hard work, because most of them are in a field with grass and with food and with water. So why would he stop their animals and livestock from eating and drinking? Let me submit to you this thought. This was their industry. This would be like proclaiming a week off work, except it's not to vacation, it's to mourn and to grieve and to pray and say, Lord, will you please not destroy us? The king gets the words of this prophet and he says, look, uh, we might want to take this seriously. We might want to put our lives on hold because they may end soon. We might want to shut everything down because this matters more than anything. If our city and if we are being judged by God, we won't be able, what does it matter if we get another paycheck? So he shuts down the power grid. He shuts down the factories. He shuts down life as they know it so they can all spend time doing something about this judgment that's coming. I tell you what, if we as a nation, or let's stop, let's stop talking about us as a nation. We as a nation of believers, as a called out assembly of God, if we were to take away even one day a week the distractions, and no doubt we have many that we are out of control of, lay them aside and fast and pray for our families, for our workplaces, for our coworkers, for people that we know that are not saved. Uh, if they make another paycheck, if we make another paycheck, if we have everything comfortable like we want it, and yet... What does it gain a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What's more important? And I think that's what he's saying. Hey, what, what does all this lap of luxury matter if we, it's going to be destroyed in a moment anyway? It's all going to be ashes. And so he proclaims a fast, he shuts down industry, and he says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Let's, let's set aside some time to to give up our pleasures on this earth and to cry out to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And then he says this in verse 9, which I think is telling. He says, who can tell? Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Who can tell? God might relent. He might change his mind. Does God change his mind? Now, from our perspective, um, he does sometimes. From his perspective, he knows who's going to repent. So what I would say to you is, these Ninevites exercise more faith than we have to today because they didn't have a message that anyone who believes and calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. 
all they had was a message of, you're getting ready to be smoked. That's all they had. So they didn't have the good news that we have. They humbled themselves. James chapter 4, verse 8 says this. James chapter 4, verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he says, if you will do so, he will lift you up. Many times we spend most of our time trying to lift ourselves up and to be okay with things. And sometimes we just need to be real and say, Lord, things kind of suck right now. Things kind of stink. They need to change. And I don't know what I need to do, but I want to be a part of your program. And God will lift us up. Verse 10, notice this. Then God saw their works. He saw that they turned from their evil way, and he relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. He did not do it. In Ephesians chapter 2, I'm saying this because it says there, they saw, excuse me, God saw their works. And this was kind of a devotional thought for me this week, but maybe it'll bless you, maybe it'll meet you where you're at. But if in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives this great statement that many times is quoted by pastors and preachers. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, I'll start in verse 4. It says, God it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then he says what many times is quoted, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You have been saved by grace. You didn't deserve it, but you had to trust in Jesus. And he says, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. You can't save yourself by doing enough good things. I cannot say that enough. You cannot do enough good works to please God and to kind of change his mind to bring you into heaven. That's not what these Ninevites were about. God doesn't forgive them because they put on sackcloth and ashes. He forgives them because they humbled themselves and they trusted him. Perhaps God will relent. And they put themselves in the hands of God and said, Lord, you do what's best in your eyes. But then it says, it's not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. In other words, we are his masterpiece. We're his statue. We're his, you know, go to an art museum and you see the, the works of a great gifted artist. You see it in all of its majesty. People pay money to go see it. You know, if you've ever been somewhere where the, you know, they have the Mona Lisa, you could go see that thing. And if you go in there and see it, you won't think about how great it is apart from thinking about how great the master was that made it. 
But then it says that we are his workmanship. Did you know that you are God's poema? You're his masterpiece. He made you exactly the way you, that you are. Even the things you don't like about yourself. He made those. So you'd be unique, just like he made you. But then it says, he says, for we are his workmanship. We're his masterpiece. And we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. There should be works that flow from your life that are good in God's sight. And if no one is good apart from God, then no one can do good apart from God. So we have to abide in him. So, and these good works he prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So God has works prepared in your life before you even get to the points you're going to go to this week. He's already prepared good works. He just wants you to walk in them. It would be like, you know, somebody that, they, a couple years ago they had uh, race car drivers. Was it Tony Stewart? He would race multiple circuits. And, and I don't even know why I know this. Uh, I guess, I think my dad told me. But basically, he would, sh- he would race a race. And of course, it's miles and miles and miles, and it would take most of the day. He would get on an airplane right after it, or a chopper or whatever he'd do. And somehow he got to the next race before he had to race. There was a crew there doing everything that he needed so that he could basically step into the car, hit the gas, and go and do what he does. We're Tony Stewart. God has sent people and individuals to plant and water and prepare, and there are things that God wants to accomplish through you and I that we just get off the helicopter, we get to sit in the seat, we get to press the gas and go and trust that everything that he's done to prepare it, our pit crew, has made it so that we will be successful at what we've been been called to do. But the thing is, is that many of us get in the paralysis of analysis, and we go, well, I don't know if God wants me to do that or not. But Psalm 37 says this. It says something. Where'd it go? Sure, I can remember all that stuff about Tony Stewart, and I can't remember Psalm 37. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If your delight is in the Lord, it will be in doing the Lord's will. And sometimes you'll get up and feel like you accomplished nothing the day before, and then the Lord will show you, hey, I know you feel like you didn't do anything, but trust me, I work all things together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. Just do what I place in front of you. Don't grumble, don't complain, don't hate it, just do it. And I love that because... Um, back in Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what Peter wrote. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Peter writes this, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So he says, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And if there's anything in this new year that the Lord has been really 
impacting me with. It's the fact that I need to be serious and watchful in my prayers because that will help me also confirm what I'm supposed to be doing, the good works I'm supposed to be walking in. He says, have fervent love for one another. For 1 Peter chapter 4. There you go. Chapter 4. Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone has something to say, let him say it as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, they took the warning seriously. They repented. God ministered to them, and he showed them that he was willing to relent, but they did it by faith. But let's talk about Jonah a little bit more. What if Jonah didn't do what he was told to do? What if Jonah said, you know what? You're giving me a second chance, but I'm out. I'm not doing it. I don't like these people. I don't care how many fish you put me in. I'm out. Now we would say, well, why would he do that? And I would ask the question, why do we do that? God's given us not just a message of judgment, but a message of grace and forgiveness that we have been partakers of. We know where to find bread. We were starving. We were lost. We were lonely. We were feeling forsaken. And God came and showed up and said, I love you. I want to be your savior. I want to take this life that you feel like is a complete loss, and I want to redeem it. I want to change things. I want to take away your guilt and your shame. And we go, oh, thank you, Lord. And then he says something that he says to Jonah, go and tell others. And we go, well, did he really tell us like that, that like he did Jonah? Well, yeah. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 in verse 11. They had just been told after Jesus resurrected, they were told by the angels, go back to Galilee because Jesus is going to meet you there. So they go back to Galilee. And it says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and Let's skip that part because it doesn't really pertain. Basically, uh, they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And uh, sorry, ignore what I just said. Do not be afraid and go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So Jesus told the women that showed up at his tomb, send the guys back to Galilee. I'll meet them there and I'll tell them what to do. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him because they thought he was dead. But some still doubted. Then the eleven disciples, excuse me, and then verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Go and tell them the good news. Go and tell them that if they believe, they can be saved as well. And in Romans chapter 10, 
we see a little bit more of this because Jonah is a perfect picture of the Israelite people. The Israelite people were a nation called out to be set apart for God's use. They were called out to be forgiven, but also to have this unique relationship with God. But they were never meant to have that relationship just for themselves. They were supposed to have such a unique relationship with God that gave them joy and peace that when other nations saw it, they wanted a piece of that. They wanted to be brought in. But Jonah reflected the heart of God's people. Jonah reflected the heart because they had been forgiven. They had this relationship with God, but they wanted to hoard it to themselves. And they still had this in the day of Jesus and in the day of Paul. And in Romans chapter 10, this is what it says. Verse 14, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. What I'm saying here is that Jonah... If he doesn't go and tell them, how can they believe? And how can they believe in someone that they've not been told about? This people in Nineveh, they didn't know about God. They were without hope. So Jonah was sent to tell them about the hope that they could have. <laughs> Whose kid is that? <laughs> That's got to be my kid, see? I mean, we need insulation down there, right? <laughs> That's okay. It's good. Kids are great. You know, they lighten the atmosphere. They have such joy. So Jonah represents Israel, and he's an accurate, accurate representation. Let me ask you this question. How does Jonah 3 reveal God to us? God gives second chances to everyone, everyone, the neighbor you can't stand, the family members that drive you nuts, that hate you or you hate them, God loves them. He gives second chances to everyone. God cares about other nations than just ours. Israel needed to know that, and I think we do. Whether Trump said what he said or not, I'm not here to say I'm for it or against it. I'm here to say that Jesus died for every person in every nation, whether it's a horrible place to live or not. I'll tell you what, it is more dangerous to be a Christian in the United States than it is in any of those places that we're referred to as particular places. I'll leave it at that. We all know. It is more hard to be a Christian here, I would subject to you, than it is anywhere else in the world because we can do things on our own. God doesn't want us to live on our own. God cares about other nations. <clears throat> Grace and mercy are extended to Jonah as well as the people that were obviously against God. Jonah was guilty as well. God uses poor vessels. God uses poor vessels. God uses unfit-to-be-used vessels. God used Jonah. 
If you can't take anything else away from this book than that, God uses people that fail. God uses people that are weak. God used Peter. Peter failed. God used Abraham. Abraham failed. Abraham was called to be this man of God. He gets married to Sarai. They go to the first place they go to, and he lies about his wife not actually being his wife. Matter of fact, a king almost takes her as his wife, causing her to commit adultery. God uses guys like that that fail. So, God is a God of forgiveness. He takes no delight in destroying the wicked. And he is moved when we humble ourselves. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jonah. We thank you for his rebellion that encourages us that we don't have to remain in rebellion. Um, brought to my mind the, the parable of the two boys that were told by their father to go and do something. And one said he would do it and did not. And the other said he would not do it. And he did. And Jesus points out that the one who said he would not do it but then later repented and did what his father asked. That was the obedient son. And so I don't know about anybody else in here, but I don't have the opportunity to be the perfect son that always did everything right. But I do have the opportunity to repent and do what I'm supposed to be doing, what I've been told by my father. So thank you for second chances. I pray for everyone in here today that you would highlight and reveal to them the places in their lives where they've been disobedient. But Father, I thank you that you don't just point out our sins and our failures. You also give us a second chance to do it. Father, help us not to stop at the point of fail. Help us to take the second chance and go big. Help us to serve you and to obey you just as hard as we went against you just as hard as we rebelled against you. In Jesus' name, amen.